Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. This is uh, the Cato Institute's sixth annual Libertarian State of the Union on the Hill. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at Cato, and I want to thank you all for coming out here today. So recent rumors of the death of libertarianism have, as usual, been greatly exaggerated. Presidential partisan politics, which seems to be trending toward a direction of totalitarian populism, is only one facet of a larger movement that has, in fact, seen much success over the last year and will continue to do so in the future. Much headway has been made on fronts as diverse as gay marriage, uh, marijuana legalization, criminal justice reform, and school choice, all age-old agenda items for libertarians. However, there are many areas of concern that remain, and to discuss the wins and losses of the year, we've assembled this panel. All the scholars here today have been published widely in academic and popular news journals and periodicals, and have been frequent guests on television and radio programs all over the country and the world. Many of them are already familiar to you, but let me briefly introduce them in their speaking order. First up, Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Shapiro has testified before Congress and state legislatures and as coordinator of Cato's amicus brief program, filed more than 150 amici curiae in the Supreme Court. He holds a JD from the University of Chicago Law School, where he became a Tony Patino Fellow and in 2015, National Law Journal named him one of the 40 rising stars in the legal community. Tim Lynch, to my right, is the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice, which under his direction has become a leading voice in support of the Bill of Rights and Civil Liberties. His research interests include the war on terror, overcriminalization, the drug war, the militarization of police tactics, and gun control. Lynch earned both a BS and a JD from Marquette University and blogs extensively at the Cato Institute's National Police Misconduct Reporting Project. Alex Narasa is the Immigration Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He is a native of Southern California and received a BA in Economics from George Mason University and a Master of Science in Economic History from the London School of Economics. Finally, Daniel J. Mitchell is a senior fellow who specializes in fiscal policy, particularly tax reform, international tax competition, and the economic burden of government spending. Mitchell earned a PhD in economics from George Mason University, and he too prolifically blogs at International Liberty, constraining government in America and around the world. Each will speak for about 10 minutes or so, and then at a quarter to one, uh, we'll pause and take questions. Um, so to the extent that your lunch allows, please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Peter, I hope that wasn't a reference to people, you know, the lunch, the disagreeing with them based no, on what I have left. to say. In their left. Right, left. yeah. Um, in the final year of Barack Obama's presidency, there isn't that much that the president can do to change people's opinion of him. Uh, for better or worse, uh, his legacy, barring some extraordinary occurrence, uh, including an extraterrestrial one, as the advertising blitz for the new Independence Day movie uh, reminded us, uh, is baked into history. Setting aside legislation and executive action, on which I'll say uh, more imminently, one of the president's chief accomplishments has been to return the Constitution to a central place uh, in our public discourse. Unfortunately, the president fomented this upswing in civ civic interest, not by talking up federalism or the separation of powers, but by blatantly violating the strictures of our founding document. With his pen and his phone, and hearkening to Woodrow Wilson's progressive view of government, He's been taking out his frustrations with the checks and balances that inhibit his ability to fundamentally transform the country. But a lack of congressional acquiescence hasn't stopped him. Even in his first term, the administration launched a We Can't Wait initiative, 
with senior aide Dan Pfeiffer explaining that, quote, when Congress won't act, this president will. And when the reelected President Obama announced his second term economic plans, he explained that, quote, I will not allow gridlock or inaction or willful difference to get in our way. Most recently, just a couple of weeks ago, White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough promised audacious executive action in this final year and explained that the main question President Obama plans for himself is, why not? Uh, that sentiment flies in the face of one of the biggest political changes that's occurred in the last decade, starting with the late Bush years. That is, lawmakers and citizens no longer consider simply whether a given bill or policy is a good idea, uh, but whether it's constitutional. Where does the government get the power to do that uh, is a cry heard both on the Occupy left and the Tea Party right. And that's a healthy development. For too long, even in those rare moments when politicians were faced with constitutional concerns, they've had the attitude that Nancy Pelosi did when asked about the authority for Obamacare's individual mandate. Are you serious? Because, of course, constitutional arguments are the last refuge of the scoundrel who has no good policy arguments to make. And so it's a good thing that Americans are taking their founding documents seriously. Uh, after all, the Constitution is the font of all federal power. It's carefully crafted structural provisions that we learned about in grade school. Well, that, that you learned about. I, I grew up in Canada, so I'm not a natural-born citizen. Um, such as the separation of powers and, and checks and balances are not merely an application of political theory. Quote, federalism is more than an exercise in setting the boundary between different institutions of government for their own integrity just as Anthony Kennedy wrote for a unanimous Supreme Court in the 2011 case of United States versus Vaughn. It protects the liberty of the individual from arbitrary power. If the federal government acts outside the scope of its delegated and carefully enumerated powers, well, it's no better than a mob. Which brings us back to Barack Obama's lawlessness, which George Mason law professor David Bernstein recently covered in a magisterial but brisk book called Lawless that everyone should read. I won't summarize David's analysis other than to note that while he can't hit everything, which is a sad statement on where we are, he does an excellent job of covering the waterfront of abuses, from Obamacare to Justice Department corruption to the Affordable Care Act to college speech codes to the ACA to the anti-discrimination law run amok to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act uh, to rule by SARS, and did I mention Obamacare? Uh, he also has an interesting chapter on foreign policy, which is tricky. Uh, because the scope of executive power over foreign affairs is less clearly defined than over domestic affairs. And yet here, too, Barack Obama has managed to violate clearly established law. Now, if you want more examples and more detail, read what are probably the three most uh, successful op-eds of my career, uh, President, Obama, President Obama's top ten constitutional violations of 2011, 2013, 2015, kind of a biannual sort of thing. Hundreds of thousands of clicks for The Daily Caller, Forbes, and National Review Online, respectively, where those were published. Think about that for a second. Isn't it a problem that it's not hard at all to come up with these lists? I mean, for legal pundits my, like myself, it's like shooting a gun while walking past a barrel to get a fish sandwich for lunch. Uh, actually, each of those actions will probably subject you to federal prosecution, see the executive action on guns. So just think about them. Obama hasn't started prosecuting thought crime though he's getting awfully close with respect to so-called climate change deniers. And as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, uh, this administration is easily the worst performer of any before the court in modern times, and probably ever, though it's more relevant to compare Obama to Bush and Clinton than, say, Benjamin Harrison. Uh, whether you look overall, where Obama is below 50 percent against a historical norm of 70 percent, 
uh, or just at unanimous cases where he has a record average of about four unanimous losses per term and more unanimous losses in his first five years than Bush in all eight. It's not a pretty picture. Uh, by the way, Cato the last three years have gone uh, 15 and 3, 10 and 1, and 8 and 7, handily beating the governor. There are three basic reasons for this. Uh, expansive executive action, including overzealous prosecution, which I imagine Tim will get into, uh, envelope-breaking legal theories, and the fact that regardless of his reasoning, Justice Kennedy tends to act like a liber uh, libertarian in close cases. As one commentator said when summarizing the Solicitor General's abysmal performance a few years back, when you have a crazy client that makes you make crazy arguments, you're going to lose some cases. If the administration wants to improve its standing before the court, I humbly suggest that it follow Cato's lead, advocating positions and engaging in actions that are grounded in law and that reinforce the Constitution's role in securing and protecting liberty. Alas, in policy after policy, from the Clean Power Plan to Obamacare implementation, from DAPA to net neutrality and other illegal regulations, the executive branch under Barack Obama has arrogated to itself the power to rewrite, ignore, suspend, and delay laws. That is the antithesis of the rule of law, and I believe has done lasting damage to the country. In sum, as the nation limps through Barack Obama's lame duck year, Americans have much to ponder regarding the example that the president has set for his successor, and what powers that successor will abuse. Hillary Clinton has already pledged to take executive action on gun control, campaign finance, immigration, because apparently President Obama is too timid here, corporate inversions, and who knows what else. And uh, trigger warning here, imagine what Donald Trump would do. So happy new year, and enjoy the presidential election. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my talk is going to be on our criminal justice system. And in this area, I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that there are a lot of problems with our criminal justice system. The good news is that this is supposed to be the year of criminal justice reform. The bad news is that most of the proposals I've seen that are being uh, advanced out there um, are just tiny steps that wouldn't do very much towards uh, making significant uh, improvements in our system. The good news, again, is that uh, the Netflix series, Making a Murderer, has got millions and millions of people talking about the American criminal justice system. And uh, so a lot of attention is being paid to it. And there's you know, more discussion going on about uh, how the system can be improved. And I just see a quick show of hands. How many people have seen uh, this series, Making a Murderer? Interesting. I, I highly recommend it. So for those of you who haven't seen it yet, uh, check it out. And for those of you who saw it, uh, watch it again. But be careful. My wife's water broke right after we watched one episode. So I don't know. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that caution. Anyway, with only 10 minutes uh, 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 for a talk, I can only very briefly walk you through some of the basic principles of uh, what we think is important for our criminal justice system and the direction in, in, in which we have to move. Um, one other preliminary point before I jump in, uh, just as a reminder, a lot of people here don't need it, but for those of uh, you who kind of casually pay attention to criminal justice, about 80 to 90% of our system is administered at the state and local level. 
although the federal system has been growing like gangbusters since 1970, still most of the action is taking place at, at the state and local level. But since we are on Capitol Hill, most of my remarks are going to be directed towards our, our federal system. But some of the points I'm going to be make, uh, making are, are going to apply to both. Okay. With that background out of the way, let me touch on what I think are some basic principles that we need to be uh, reminded about from time to time. And the first one is that our criminal law ought to be very clear and understandable. In a free society, the line between lawful conduct and unlawful conduct should be crystal clear so that people can arrange their lives and conduct their businesses without accidentally crossing over. To prove a criminal violation, the government should have evidence that the person knew where the line was and deliberately crossed over. Believe it or not, tax season is creeping up on us already, and we all know how complicated the federal tax code is. A lot of us need expert advice to navigate us through that complicated system. But in order for the government to prosecute somebody for tax evasion, they have to prove a, a willful violation. Not that just somebody did their tax return wrong. You can't prosecute somebody for tax evasion for that. At least that won't be upheld in our court. The government has to prove that somebody knew uh, they were deliberately crossing uh, a, a rule of violating the, the tax code. It's called a willfulness standard. And so this is an area of the law that's proper. We've got it right. But the problem is, is that we, this willfulness standard does not apply to all the other regulatory violations that we find in the federal criminal code. So that is something that should be changed. I've seen op-eds recently by Senator Hatch and Congressman Goodlatte from Politico talking about the importance of mens rea. They do have a bill out there, but it just makes a very tiny, tiny step to mens rea. It doesn't go nearly as far as, as, as it should. You may have read in the newspapers two weeks ago that uh, the Supreme Court has taken up a case of uh, former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell. His case is going up to the Supreme Court. It basically raises this issue. Um, he's made a lot of bad judgment calls, but his attorneys are saying that he didn't violate the criminal law. And his attorneys, there's lots of Virginia officials that are saying he didn't violate Virginia law, so he's been prosecuted in federal court under a vague federal statute. And uh, this is a case to watch. I think the Supreme Court is going to uh, invalidate his conviction. Um, but again, the courts are moving like case by case. We need a clean sweep of this area to make sure our criminal laws are very clear. Second principle, our trials should be fair and just. Now, everybody kind of agrees with this, so we have to get into the details. Uh, the Supreme Court says is, is, if the government, the Department of Justice, federal prosecutors have information that tends to show that the accused is innocent, they have to disclose that information to the trial court and to the defense team. Again, if you've been watching that series, uh, Making a Murderer, there's an episode in there where the Manitowoc Police Department is get a, gets a call from another police department in another jurisdiction, and they say, we've got somebody in our jail who's confessed to a crime, and he says, Somebody else has been prosecuted in your county. Now, if the government uh, 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 fails to disclose information like that to uh, the person who is serving time and to his defense lawyers, that's an ethical violation and a legal violation. And uh, the problem is that we have too many prosecutors who are saying, yes, we're complying with our, our legal obligations, but then we find out years later uh, that they didn't. 
Uh, another prominent case involved uh, Alaska Governor uh, Senator Stevens a few years ago. Um, he was prosecuted. Uh, he lost his election, and then years later, uh, it came to light that the prosecutors had information that they should have disclosed to his defense counsel, and uh, uh, his conviction was thrown out on that basis. Um, what we need is a, a federal law that bolsters uh, this legal obligation. Lawyers call it the Brady obligation because that's the name of the case that requires this disclosure obligation. So if you hear attorneys talking about Brady material or Brady obligation, this is the principle that we're talking about. We had a federal judge speak at Cato a few months ago, federal judge Alex Kaczynski. He's a, a, a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. He's been on the bench for 30 years, appointed by President Reagan. And he says we have an epidemic of Brady violations going on in the United States. So this is a very important issue that goes to the heart of whether people are getting a fair trial or not. In addition to prosecutors, we should expect high standards of professionalism and integrity from federal law enforcement agents. Uh, last year, we had a lot of media organizations such as the Washington Post and the Guardian trying to track how many people have been shot and killed by the police around the country. Um, this came to light after the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson is that we, you know, this started a national conversation and then we realized that we haven't got an annual tally of, of people that are, are killed by the police. So a lot of these media, media organizations said, all right, in 2015, we're going to track it to the best of our ability, and they disclosed that information uh, last month. I bring it up because there are some calls for the federal government to start requiring the states to tally up uh, this information. But there's a problem with that, is that we don't even have a, a tally of persons uh, who are shot by federal law enforcement agencies, and that should be the first order of business. And we've got the FBI, the DEA, the ATF. We've got all of these agencies. And the first order of business is getting a tally of, of persons uh, shot by federal agents. Uh, the states are beginning to do uh, this on their own. Governor Abbott in Texas signed a bill that's going to require all, anybody shot in Texas, they have to report this information to the state attorney general within 30 days. Another problem in this area is that when a federal agent is accused of homicide or manslaughter, we suddenly hear arguments that he is immune from prosecution. Now this is hard to get your head around because when an agent is accused of, of a crime, uh, especially like homicide or, or manslaughter, he has the same legal defenses that you or I would have. I mean, he can argue self-defense, he can argue it was an accident, it wasn't intentional, and these types of things. So those legal defenses are definitely available, but we hear this other argument saying that because he's a federal agent, he's got sweeping immunity from prosecution at the state level. Now this is a dubious uh, legal defense, but what Congress can do is simply waive these immunity defenses uh, uh, for the federal law enforcement bureaucracy. Uh, Congress did something similar with a law called the McDade Law for, for federal prosecutors about 10, 20 years ago. They said we're immune from state bar ethical obligations. Because we're, we work for the federal government, we're not obligated by the state bar rules. And Congress passed the McDade law saying, well, okay, whatever the merits of that argument are, we're waiving immunity so that you do have to comply with those ethical obligations. So I think Congress will do the same thing with respect to federal agents. Fourth principle is that the government ought to offer generous compensation when the criminal justice system makes mistakes and innocent people get locked up. The Cato Institute identifies dozens and 
dozens of federal programs, you know, where, they, where they we're wasting money or the federal government has gotten involved in areas that they shouldn't. But this is an area, wrongful convictions, is something, you know, the government should be spending money on. And it should be very generous when we find out that a terrible miscarriage of justice has taken place. Somebody has been deprived of their liberty, torn away from their family for years because of some mistake in the system. Uh, too often the government is uh, outrageously stingy and unwilling to admit its mistakes. Now there is a federal law that was passed about 15 years ago called the Hyde Bill. So don't be fooled by this. Somebody might say, well, we've already taken care of that with the Hyde Bill. Uh, the Hyde Bill or law has, uh, the bar is very, very high. Few people get any compensation. Few people qualify for it in the Department of Justice. is always opposing efforts to uh, change that law so that more people who have experienced an injustice can get compensated. So that is something else that needs to be fixed. Uh, there's more to be done, uh, such as civil asset forfeiture reform, uh, drug war policy, and over-criminalization. But I know that I have uh, used up all of my allotted time, so let me stop right here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for all of you coming here today. And I want to say a special thank you to Ilya Shapiro for defending our Constitution showing once again that immigrants do jobs Americans won't. <laughs> I kid, of course. I stole that joke from him, because he but he delivers it much better than I do, so. Um, by the way, PowerPoint's unconstitutional, so uh, take, take this whole presentation with a grain of salt. Well, we are living in Obama's America, so. Uh, so, immigration and terrorism. Terrorism is a big issue when it comes to what type of immigration policy that we should have, what type of security measures we should have in place when it comes to immigrants or foreigners coming to the United States. So in researching after the San Bernardino attacks in December, I was trying to find if there was any evidence of how frequently foreign-born people commit terrorism on U.S. soil and kill Americans. And I wasn't able to find anything. So I decided to spend time building an index myself to try to calculate the actual risks and costs of foreign-born people committing terrorism on the United States. So I want to share with you my preliminary <laughs> results in this, and I want to say that these numbers are a sort of starting point to try to uh, think through what a rational security procedure should be to prevent terrorism in the United States through the immigration process. So first off, calculating the risks. So a few numbers I took a look at. Uh, the number of foreign-born terrorists targeting Americans on U.S. soil uh, is sort of the most important figure. I uh, took a look. Uh, took a look at their visas that they were on when they were here, how many people they killed or how much damage they inflicted, uh, each one of them individually, uh, and also the total number of visas issued in each category that they entered on, which is an important feature for calculating how risky each visa category actually is because some categories are more risky uh, than others are. So some of those numbers I got uh, for the individual information on the terrorists and for the numbers and their names, I took a look at 1975 through 2015 to get sort of a big picture uh, sort of data grab on all of this. I've used the ter Global Terrorism Database at the University of Maryland and the RAND database as well as work by John Mueller at Ohio State University who's also a um, uh, Cato scholar. So I took a look at, I included all foreign-born terrorists who were identified for a terrorist act, uh, their information, how many people they killed. Um, some terrorist attacks, especially like in the 70s and 80s, they were probably committed by a foreign-born person. You know, terrorist organizations named like, you know, the Vietnamese People's um, Liberation Front. 
uh, but nobody was actually prosecuted or caught for those. So I couldn't really include those people because I didn't know who they were. Um, so this is the, this some of the limitations. I also took a look at the total number of visas issued per category from DHS, and when in doubt, I picked the numbers that would make the risk appear as high as possible. So if there are two conflicting numbers, I picked the one that was highest. Um, so some of the, the base numbers uh, from those 40-year uh, period, 1975 to 2015, there were 7.9 billion non-immigrant visas issued by the United States. Uh, and then there were 60 million issue, uh, green cards issued uh, or, uh, and then um, uh, included in that figure also uh, illegal immigrants who entered the United States during that time period. However, uh, terrorists did not use all of those visa categories to enter the U.S. They used only some of them. Um, they used the categories of um, uh, so, uh, illegal immigrants, uh, green cards, students, K-1 fiancé visa, refugees, asylum seekers, tourists, or the B-1 visas, uh, and the visa waiver program. So of those categories, only 1.136 billion visas were issued uh, during that time period. There were a total of 143 foreign-born terrorists over this time period uh, that I was able to find and count. Uh, including the 9-11 attacks, those people killed in terrorist attacks, uh, 3,024 people inside of the United States. So I didn't count somebody who was, plant, who was giving money, who was in America, who was giving money to Hamas to do a terrorist attack elsewhere. I just wanted to see what the risk was inside of the United States to Americans, because this is where immigration co policy comes into play. It turns out, including 9-11, 9-11 on that one day in 2001 is responsible for 98.6% of all terrorist casualties in the United States uh, during this entire time period. So it is by far a huge outlier. Uh, it's actually an outlier globally. The next closest terrorist attack was the blowing up of an Air India flight uh, from Canada uh, that killed about 336 people. 9-11 killed about just under 3,000. So the next smallest terrorist attack was an order of magnitude smaller. So just to give you an idea of the scale of 9-11 in terms of terrorist attacks around the world, it was gigantic. Um, the Department of Homeland Security estimates um, that uh, basically the cost of an individual death inside the United States is about $6.5 million using a complicated economic rationality. Um, and they say you might have to double that for terrorism because of the, how dramatic and how affecting that kind of uh, murder is. So I made it $15 million just to round upwards and be safe in this type of analysis. So what I found was, um, of the uh, terrorists, and these are people who are the terrorists themselves, 11 of them over this 40-year period were illegal immigrants out of a total of 26.5 million illegal immigrants who entered, or one terrorist for every 2.4 million illegal immigrants in the United States uh, who entered during this time period. So a fairly small risk. For lawful permanent residents, those are green cards. Uh, and these numbers are really over here all on the right-hand side, uh, right um, there on the far right. For green cards, it's about uh, one for every 741,000, or just over one a year. Uh, students, it's about one for every 1.27 million. K-1, which are the, uh, rent, that's the fiancé visa that um, uh, Malik used in San Bernardino to kill those 14 people last December. Uh, in situations where a foreign-born person like the K-1 visa worked with an American-born, I count all those murders as being committed by the immigrant, uh, just for making it simple and for, to exaggerate the cost. Uh, refugee, about 1 in 162,000. Asylum seeker, 1 in 175,000. Tourists, about 1 in every 20.5 million. 
That's on the B visa tourism. And for a visa waiver program, uh, there are two tourists. That's a visa waiver program. It's an agreement we have. I believe it's with 38 countries. You can come here without a visa for 90 days uh, to uh, be a tourist. Um, one in 194 million people who have entered have been terrorists on that category. Now, that only tells you people who have been convicted or were planning the terrorist attack or actually carried it out. What about the casualties? So these are the number of murders committed in terrorist attacks by people in each individual category. So for illegal immigrants, um, of those that I mentioned before, uh, those 11 uh, only uh, all together committed one murder through a terrorist attack. Um, so one murder for every 26.5 million illegal immigrants who entered. So that's pretty good uh, in terms of safety, pretty good in terms of risk, of being able to bear that risk. If you were to charge each illegal immigrant a fee and put that fee into an account to compensate people for the victims or for the loss of life that occurred from terrorist attack, you would have to charge each illegal immigrant 57 cents to make up for that total amount. Uh, lawful permanent residents, they killed 10 people in terrorist attacks or one for every 3.4 million. Uh, so one murder for every 3.4 million issued uh, with a total cost of $4.31 per LPR. Uh, students, so because one student was involved in the 9-11 hijacking, I split up all of those casualties from 9-11 equally amongst all the hijackers and divided them up that way. So because one student was responsible, his share of the casualties is 157, uh, and then there was another guy, um, and then there were there some other ones. So for students, uh, there was one murder victim in a terrorist attack for every 152,000 of those visas issued, or 98 bucks for each one. K-1 visa, there's only been one terrorist on the K-1 visa, and that was the San Bernardino one, but she killed a lot of people. So that is particularly damaging. So there's one murder victim for every 43,000 of the K-1 visas that have been issued. So that makes it appear to be like the most dangerous, but that's all in one event. So you want to keep that in mind as well. That means that we would have to charge each K-1 visa holder $347.60 to make up for that. So, uh, so Ukrainian mail-order bride still very safe. Uh, uh, it's, uh, let's just say that uh, if this is any indication, um, they will be very safe or be really bad. Uh, so, um, and then refugees, which is everybody is worried about with Syrian refugees, um, of those terrorists that I mentioned uh, before, uh, those uh, 20 terrorists I mentioned before, they, mentioned, they managed to kill three people. So that's one murder for every 1.084 million illegal uh, refugees here enter. Uh, and you can sort of see it down the list. The tourists are the greatest number of murder victims because of the 9-11 hijackers, 18 out of those 19 were on a tourist visa while they were here in the United States. But because there are so many tourist visas issued, 658 million during that time period, that's one murder for every 232,000 tourists let into the United States, or about 64 bucks a tourist. Uh, there are seven people who are unknown. I couldn't figure out their visa category. Um, and then visa waiver program, uh, nobody has been killed by a terrorist in a visa waiver. These folks were either planning, or they were like Richard Reed, the shoe bomber who was coming into the US and it didn't work because these people are not usually very bright. Uh, so that's a very safe visa that doesn't cost, that hasn't so far cost anything in the past. Okay, so we talked about the cost and the frequency and how frequently these uh, attacks occur. Um, what about the annual cost? So if you divide up all these costs over 40 years, $15 million per, uh, we can see it's 
about $1.14 billion annually deaths committed and costs of deaths committed by foreign-born terrorists in the United States. I'm going to double that to 2.3 just to be really, really safe, including like property damage and other things like that, which are usually a lot less than the cost of human life that occurs in a terrorist attack, 9-11 being, uh, again, different. So what are the benefits from immigration? George Borjas estimates at Harvard the most negatively that the American economy, Americans, benefit from immigration individually by $35 billion a year. Benjamin Powell at Texas Tech University estimates it's $230 billion a year in benefit. So the net benefits average, uh, including the $2.3 billion a year average benefit, the net benefits, I mean the, the cost from terrorism, uh, the net benefits annually are between $32.7 billion and $226.7 billion plus. So the costs, the risks of terrorism are fairly moderate. The costs are not gigantic. They're positive, but they're not gigantic. But the benefits of immigration far exceed and overwhelm those costs that we've had to bear. One of the things that we hear about now is a moratorium. So especially in the wake of the San Bernardino attack, people have talked about an immigration moratorium. Uh, such luminaries as Ann Coulter uh, mentioned that. Uh, Larry, Col uh, Larry uh, Kudlow mentioned it, who is uh, usually uh, very say on these issues. And uh, David Bossie, who's head of Citizens United, mentioned this. Sort of to get, to get a handle on uh, terrorism, we need to stop all immigration. Um, as I showed you before, the benefits of immigration clearly outweigh the cost when you figure in this foreign-born terrorism. Uh, but how bad would terrorism have to be to make a moratorium worth it, so it broke even, so that the costs of stopping immigration equal the benefits and fewer deaths and lives lost? How much would it have to be? So assuming $15 million per death uh, annually, uh, you would have to have between 2,333 to 15,267 deaths each year for a moratorium to make sense, based on the different estimates. Uh, $30 million per death, it's a 1,167 to 7,633. So in other words, you'd have to have somewhere between 84 and 1,091 San Bernardino scale attacks each year for an immigration moratorium just to break even. Just to put that into perspective. Uh, since 9-11, there has been one San Bernardino scale attack in the United States as targeted Americans. So just to put that in perspective, a moratorium will cost far, far more and do far more damage uh, than good to the U.S. Um, the risks and costs of foreign-born terrorism are fairly small, but the costs of a moratorium or other policies are large. To put this in perspective, from 1975 to 2015, there are about 768,000 murders in the United States. Terrorism is responsible for 0.039% of that. Um, immigration moratorium, I think, is an insanely enumerate response to a risk that is bearable. Um, I think we should bear these risks because the benefits are greater um, than the costs. Uh, but if we have to do something about it, uh, insurance, maybe charging visa holders for that amount of money that I talked about individually before and putting that into a fund or making them buy some kind of insurance uh, when they come to the United States is probably a much better and less costly way to go. Um, I also want to say, like, you know, every death from terrorism is a tragedy, and it's something to mourn and to be sad about. Uh, but the government also has scarce, limited resources to apply to security. And it should apply those resources in a way to diminish the amount of death as much as possible. And I think these numbers, putting these, uh, the, these numbers and costs in perspective, is one way to 
so the government to more rationally do this. Um, just to give you one more number before I leave, post 9-11 in the United States, there have been 1.7 deaths per year on average from foreign-born people committing terrorism in the United States. Um, your chances or somebody's chances of being killed by a foreign-born terrorist in the United States post 9-11 is one in 176.5 million each year. Um, just to leave you that last final number. So thank you very much. So I guess playing Powerball is a better set of odds. Uh, uh, I'm going to close things up, and, uh, and I guess uh, if we're supposed to stop by 11.45, I have to say everything in uh, six minutes. But the good news is I was born in New York. Unlike Ilya, that makes me eligible to run for president, uh, and I can talk really, really fast. Are you going to show off your New York values? Is that what you're going to yeah, do? Yes, uh, these, are, these are my New York values. Uh, fiscal State of the Union. Uh, it's bad. Maybe not bad. <laughs> I, mean, I could just sh sit down right now. We'd be fine. Uh, it might not be actually bad this year, relatively speaking, but it's going to get really, really bad in the future because of two simple things. Demographics, which is baked into the cake. We know what death rates are. We know what birth rates are. We know about the aging of the population. No controversy there. And the other thing is we have an entitlement program, an entitlement system uh, that is based on the notion that we used to have a population pyramid. And we all sort of know what that is from school, right? You know, a few old people at the top and a big generation of workers, even bigger generation of children. When you had a population pyramid, entitlement programs, even if they didn't make us libertarians happy, if they were modest, they might have been sustainable. But guess what? We're moving from a population pyramid to a population cylinder, and the current entitlement structure is grossly irresponsible and grossly unsustainable. Uh, considering that, I want to show you a couple of uh, bits of data from international bureaucracies. Bank for International Settlement in uh, Switzerland, they did estimates of long-term prognosis. And long-term, by the way, is only 2040, which is what, 24 years away? Uh, so within 24 years, the red line, the red dash line being the projection, we're going to go up to government debt of 450% of GDP. Uh, the green and blue lines show what happens if you do a little bit of reform and a lot of reform. Uh, so you can see that we're heading into very, very dangerous uh, territory way beyond where Greece got in trouble, which was about 115% of GDP. Here's a chart from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. I don't like that bureaucracy because they're always pushing status policies, but they do a good job of putting together statistics. And you won't be able to see it, but all you really need to understand is that the vertical axis shows how much fiscal consolidation you would have to undertake on an annual basis to stabilize your government debt levels. So you don't want a high bar, which means you don't want to be on the right side of the graph. Well, if you look at the graph, you'll see Greece, Japan, Portugal, and then the fourth worst country in the world in terms of long-term fiscal prognosis is the United States. Worse than France, worse than Spain, worse than Italy. One final set of numbers from the IMF, another international bureaucracy. Again, a very cluttered-looking chart. But all you need to understand is on the vertical axis, it's a measure of how much just age-related government spending alone is going to increase between now and 2030. And on the horizontal axis, you have the amount of fiscal consolidation you would need to t undertake, sort of in effect similar to that OECD chart I just showed you. So it's not good to be high, and it's not good to be out on this chart. In other words, you don't want to be in the upper right quadrant. Well, the United States is all alone in the upper right quadrant. In other words, we're in a mess. 
Now, I've shown you what international bureaucracies are saying. Some of you Hill folks have probably seen CBO and GAO numbers. You know, not, nothing I'm saying is controversial. You could have someone from some crazy left-wing think tank up here, and they're going to say, yeah, that's true. The real issue is, what do you do about it? Uh, our view is, we look at this situation, and this cartoon sums it up better than all those charts. We have too many people riding in the wagon, and it's going to get even worse, and there just aren't enough people to pull the wagon. So I'm mixing my metaphors. You know, it's, a, it's a pig getting blood dry as opposed to a wagon. Uh, but the point is, is that if we don't do something to change the underlying fiscal system, we're in deep, long-run trouble. So what, what is the answer? Well, I mentioned our crazy friends on the left, and if they were up here, they would say raise taxes. And then they say raise taxes, and then they would say raise taxes again and again and again. But the problem is, I don't think that really works. It doesn't work for two reasons. Number one, you raise taxes, and there's a natural instinct on the part of politicians to spend more money uh, because they think more revenue is coming in. But then the second problem is a lot of times that additional revenue doesn't actually materialize or not nearly as much as they think will occur. And I have some interesting charts from Europe that I think really puts this in a long-term perspective. You know, sometimes you look at one, two, three years of data, and people can sort of do cherry-picking and, and data mining and show anything they want. But let's look over a 40-year period. And this first chart shows uh, the tax burden in Europe over a four-decade period increasing by 10 percentage points of GDP. In other words, European governments collectively, this is Western Europe, so we're looking at countries most analogous to the United States, these Western European countries collectively grabbed an additional 10 percentage points of GDP uh, through the tax system. And in almost every single case, these politicians said, we're doing this because we have to reduce debt, we have to control deficits, we have to be more fiscally responsible. Well, let's look at, and by, and by the way, is the bluish, uh, purplish uh, bar is the late 60s, and then the reddish uh, bar is, uh, is the end of last decade. Uh, well, now let's look at what government debt was in the late 60s. And it, these are five-year averages, so I'm not cherry-picking. Uh, government debt in the uh, late 60s in Europe averaged about 45% of GDP. Now, remember, that's when the tax burden was under 30% of GDP. They increased the tax burden to about 40% of GDP, supposedly to get control of red ink, to reduce deficits and debt. What actually happened? You know, this is the guy there sort of scratching his head. What numbers are we going to see? Well, if we look at the last five years of last decade, it turns out that government debt went up, not down. In other words, they literally spent every single penny of additional tax revenue and then some. And by the way, if we updated this chart, which I guess I should do since we have a new five-year set of data, you would see that the government debt level would be way above the top of the vertical scale because, of course, Europe has gone through a fiscal crisis in the last few years. Why? For the same reason that we're heading toward a fiscal crisis, too many people riding in the wagon, not enough people pulling it. Welfare states are simply too extravagant, and they're luring people into government dependency, and the tax systems to finance those welfare states are punishing private sector activity, so you're really getting hit from both sides uh, with these ill-guided uh, Ill, uh, policies. There's another issue, though, and this gets to the private sector and the tax base, and this is the lack or curve constraint. When you raise taxes, what are you doing? You're punishing something. Now, people understand that, uh, politicians even, when they talk about, well, we need to raise taxes on tobacco because we want people to smoke less. Well, I work at a libertarian think tank. I don't want to control people's private lives. But you know what? 
I give those politicians an A-plus for economics because they're right. The more you tax to something, the less you get of it. The problem is that the politicians conveniently forget that lesson when it comes to taxes on work, saving, investment, entrepreneurship, the things that actually create economic output. And so when you're imposing higher and higher tax rates on, on ineffective people that are pulling the wagon, what are you doing? You're discouraging them from doing the pulling. You're discouraging them from earning income, uh, building wealth, creating jobs, and things like that. Uh, and this is a chart simply showing the Laffer curve, and I put that up here for one reason. I don't want to be on the revenue-maximizing point of the Laffer curve. I want to be on the growth-maximizing point of the Laffer curve, and that's where you raise enough money to finance the legitimate functions of government, which Ilya will tell you are the ones in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, that musty old document that he's been forced to read uh, in order to become an American citizen. Uh, but let's look at some evidence on the Laffer curve. Because we conducted a great experiment in the 1980s. When Ronald Reagan was elected, the top tax rate was 70%. And you can see the data here, which comes directly from the IRS Statistics of Income Bulletin, you can see that in 1980, we had certain, a certain number of rich people defined as making more than $200,000 a year. And we see how much those rich people reported in taxable income, and we see how much they paid to Uncle Sam. Now, Reagan took that 70% tax rate and brought it all the way down to 28%. And all the people at the time on the left are crazy friends again. They said, that's not fair. The rich won't pay enough. The government will be starved of revenue. What actually happened in the 1980s when we conducted this natural experiment in the Laffer curve? What happened when the tax rate went from 70% down to 28%? Revenues were 19 billion. What happened to, ta to tax revenues? Did they fall proportionately to eight and a half billion? Did they fall to 15 billion? Did they actually stay the same? Or did they go up? Well, again, unlike, unlike uh, Alex, I don't, I don't concoct my own numbers. I just go to the IRS website. And if you go to the IRS website and you look at the statistics of income bulletin, what do you find? Presto, we had a lot more rich people. They reported 10 times as much taxable income, and the government got five times as much tax revenue uh, from those making more than $200,000 a year. Now, Obama and a lot of other politicians around the world want to run this experiment in reverse. And I guess my contention is, if you think you're going to solve the entitlement crisis on the tax side of the fiscal equation, that's a growth mistake that simply accelerates our path to becoming Greece or France or Italy or some other country that's in trouble. What's the real problem? The real problem is that government is growing faster than the private sector. Now, that's sort of the putting in, in, in words this notion that too many people riding in the wagon, not enough people pulling the wagon. And so what you have to do is you have to follow what I call my golden rule. My buddy Art Laffer is famous for his Laffer curve, so I'll try to name something after myself. <laughs> and the, and the, my golden rule is simply the private sector should grow faster than the government. You'll write that on your napkin if you want. Yes, uh, and, and I'll even autograph it for a small fee. Um, now, the reason this rule, I think, actually makes sense, notwithstanding the fact that I've attached my name to it, is because you'll notice that nowhere in here does it say balance the budget. Because I think that's, a, that's the wrong focus. Deficits are a symptom. It's government spending that's the underlying problem. If I have headaches and I go to a doctor and say, doctor, I got these headaches, and the doctor does all those MRIs and CAT scans and says, Dan, you have a brain tumor, do I then tell the doctor, well, can you give me some aspirin for the headache? Well, maybe I actually do want some aspirin for the headache, but guess what? I'm a lot more concerned about deal with the tumor. That's the real threat. 
and it's the, it's the rising burden of government spending we should focus on, and if we simply have government spending grow slower than the private sector, good things happen. And here's a chart table uh, showing lots of countries around the world that for multi-year periods have done exactly that. And it turns out when you control government spending so it grows slower than the private sector, what happens is you shrink the burden of government spending relative to the private sector. And if you look at the far right column, oh, it turns out that's actually the way you reduce red ink. So if you actually do want to focus on the symptom of red ink instead of the underlying disease of government, well, the only successful policy is still the same, control government spending. When I debate my left-wing friends, I say, show me your table of countries that have successfully raised taxes to get themselves out of a fiscal crisis. Oh, Greece, no, that didn't work. They raised a lot of taxes. They're still in trouble. France, no, that hasn't. They don't have it. They have a blank screen upon, upon, uh, to show you because raising taxes to try to deal with an overspending problem, I don't know, there must be some analogy that would be appropriate, but since we're being filmed, I won't speculate on the one I have. Now, by the way, we actually had some success in the United States uh, after 2009. The Tea Party election of 2010, things like the debt limit fights, the sequester, uh, the government shutdowns, they actually paid off. We had a five-year spending freeze, nominal dollars, not just inflation adjusted dollars, a five-year spending freeze between 2009 and 2014. And just on the federal government level, we had the biggest five-year reduction in the burden of government spending since the end of World War II. So those fights paid off. That's the good news. The bad news, that fiscal discipline has disappeared. Here's a chart showing year-over-year, 12-month year, averages for the changes in government spending and revenue. The government spending is the red line. It's a little bit cluttered of a chart. All you need to know is that if the red line is above that horizontal zero, that means government is increasing. And you'll see from 2009 to 2014, it was on a downward trajectory. That was good. But now it's on an upward trajectory. In other words, for some reason, Republicans getting full control of Congress has resulted in more spending, not less. You know, things like the, 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 the budget agreement from last year where we budget busted the spending caps again. Uh, so this is what we need to worry about, government growing faster than the private sector. That's why the CBO's new numbers that came out are bad news. So I'll close with one final chart. I took those new CBO numbers that just came out earlier this week. And where government spending is right now is where all those lines converge. And the blue line that's by itself is the projection of revenues over the next 10 years. So where we are right now, obviously, is, is on the left side of that chart at 2016. What do we need to do to balance the budget? Now, again, I don't think ba balancing the budget is the load star uh, that we should be going for. It should be reducing government. But let's say we want to focus on dealing with the symptom. Do you realize that we can balance the budget within 10 years by simply having government grow 2.5% a year? If we did from two, what we did from 2009 to 2014 and had a spending freeze, which is just the vertical, I mean, the horizontal, I guess, reddish line there, we would balance the budget by 2020. In other words, it's actually not that difficult to make fiscal progress if you follow that golden rule. Nominal GDP is growing by 4% a year, which means nominal revenues are growing by about 4% a year. So it's obviously simple to reduce the burden of government and to reduce government red ink by having some sort of rule that limits how fast government spending is growing. I think one of the best examples out there is the Swiss debt break, uh, which even though it's called a debt break, it's actually a spending cap, sort of similar to Colorado's uh, Taxpayer Bill of Rights, that's a spending cap. 
Uh, there are proposals out there that would do that. Congressman Brady has something called the MAP Act. Senator Corker has something called the CAP Act. Uh, but simply focusing on what we can do to control government spending in the short run is what we need to do. And obviously, to make those numbers work in the long run, we're going to need something that wasn't discussed last night in the presidential debate. And that's some genuine, meaningful, proper entitlement reform. Thank you very much.